we believe as a church that as believers, that as we continue to meditate upon the truth of God's word, that we would be like trees planted by streams of water that bear its fruit in season. That's why we dedicate a portion of our service to the reading of God's word. This morning's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. If you are using the Blue Pew Bibles, it is on page 2 through 3. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Please stand to honor the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 to 20. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. And now we ask by the power of your spirit that you may take the preaching of your word and to bring understanding and to bring transformation in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, this week we were reminded that the world that we live in is a dangerous place. For weeks, we have been hearing news that Russia was on the brink of invading another sovereign nation to topple Ukraine's government and to replace it with one that is more friendly and more subservient to Russia. 
Well, as we all know, this past week, that invasion began. Not since World War II have we seen on the European continent a war like this between two sovereign nations. You know, many assume that with the rise of modern nation states, with developed economies and global alliances, that because of these developments over the last 75 years, that warfare and aggression like this would be a thing of the past, that we would have evolved beyond these primitive and savage instincts. But this week is a stark reminder that some things never change. Bloodshed, violence, and war has marked and will continue to mark the human experience. There is just something in our nature that traps us in these sinful cycles, these destructive patterns that are expressed not only on the world stage, but also in our homes and in our hearts. Now, we might experience seasons of relative peace and stability, but such illusions are quickly dispelled by events such as this past week. So let us pray as a church for this war to end quickly, for the aggression to cease immediately, for the protection and preservation of life among the people of Ukraine, and for the gospel witness of the Ukrainian church during an existential crisis such as this. As a church, let's pray. But in order to help us pray, to know what to pray for, I think we need to know why human beings can't seem to stop hurting each other and fighting with each other. Well, in God's good providence, we just so happen to be in the very passage of Scripture that directly explains why. The answer, as we find here in our text, revolves around a couple, a snake, and a curse. According to Genesis 3, this world and all who live therein are under a curse. Now, I know that word might confuse you because we typically use the word curse in reference to profanity, uttering a curse word, or we use it in, as a synonym for having bad luck. My team is cursed to never win the championship. But in Scripture, a curse, especially when attributed to God, is not just an utterance, and it's not just a reference to bad fortune. God's curse is the opposite of God's blessing. So when God blesses you, Scripture describes him as having his face turned towards you, and he shines his face upon you, and you receive all this goodness that you don't deserve. But when God curses you, it's as if his face is turned from you, and from that point on, you receive the punishment that you do deserve. So, when God cursed the world and cursed the human race, we must understand it as an act of justice. It was an act of judgment, giving us what we deserve. His face was turned away, and he gave us over to the sinful desires of our hearts. And to this day, our world and, and our lives are reaping the consequences. All of this pain and suffering, all of this violence and aggression are the results of this curse. In Genesis 3, humanity sowed the wind, and ever since then, we have been reaping the whirlwind. So friends, the plan is to walk through this providentially timed text, Genesis 3, verses 8 to 20, 
uh, verse 7 to 20, and to look more deeply at the consequences of this curse. We're going to see this curse manifested in four different ways. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. You'll see an outline. First, we'll see the curse of psychological shame. Second, the curse of spiritual hostility. Third, the curse of relational discord. And lastly, the curse of vocational distress. So let's begin by considering the first consequence of the curse, that being psychological shame. Before we make any attempts to understand all the problems on the world stage, we really need to examine ourselves. We need to understand how sin has cursed the way that we view God and the way we view ourselves. And really, you can make the case that the curse of psychological shame underlies and explains all forms of human aggression. The alienation and hostility that is experienced right now between nations can be traced back to the alienation and hostility that individuals experience in relation to God. There is a direct line of correlation. So let's look back to see how all of this started, how, how shame ended up dominating our psychological state. Now, our text begins in verse 7. Prior to this, as we saw last week, Adam and Eve just ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one tree among the many trees in the garden that they were explicitly told was off-limits. Genesis 2 had ended with Adam and Eve married, naked, and unashamed. But after they sinned, after they ate from the fruit of the tree, what was previously a sign of a healthy relationship, that nakedness, characterized by openness and trust between each other, suddenly became a sign of unhealth, characterized by shame and distrust. And so they attempted to cover up their nakedness, to cover up their shame, and they tried to hide from God among the trees. Now, friends, it's important to recall what we said last week about Adam and Eve not just being guilty of law-breaking, but fundamentally being guilty of law-making, of trying to be like God to determine for themselves good from evil, right from wrong. That's what sin is. Perhaps you've heard sin described as missing the mark, you know, missing the mark of God's perfection, falling short in the keeping of his law. And there's actually truth in that kind of description of sin because the Greek word for sin is related to an archery term for, for missing the mark, not hitting the bullseye. But friends, if that's all sin is, then we'll be tempted to see ourselves as not all that bad off. I mean, sure, we're not perfect. We don't always hit the bullseye, but hey, at least, at least we're on target. And hey, we're, we're much better shots than those people over there. You can get to thinking like that. But in scripture, sin is not just missing the target of God's perfection. Sin is pointing the bow at God and letting the arrow fly. Sin is defiance. Sin is open rebellion against God. Now, there is a legitimate sense of shame that should be felt by any rebel who turns against his good and loving king. Shame, you, under, you need to understand, is in and of itself not a bad thing. 
there is such a thing as a good form of shame, good shame. If we betray a friend's trust, it's right to feel shame. If we dishonor our parents because they can be a bit overbearing and irritating, and even though we know they just are trying to help, then feeling ashamed of what we said to them is a good thing. Good shame is the appropriate response to our sinfulness. Good shame leads us back to God with a contrite heart and towards those we offended with humble confession. That's good shame, and it's a good thing. But of course, there's bad shame. Bad shame triggers us to excuse our behavior, to cover over our sin, to hide from God, and to avoid those we hurt. That's bad shame. And that is unfortunately what was motivating Adam and Eve. And it results in them hiding in the trees, hoping to avoid the holy gaze of God. That, my friends, is man in his natural state in hiding. Well, now notice God in his natural state, seeking. That's God and what he naturally does. He seeks after us in our our hiding. Look at verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Did you notice? Did you notice the kindness in the Lord's line of questioning? The mere fact, really, that he's asking a question rather than just commanding Adam to come out of hiding, that speaks volumes in itself. And just consider the question that God asks. Where are you? Where are you? That really forces Adam to pause and and to look around and to consider, where is he? To reflect on this terrible position that he now finds himself in, this position he's never been in before. He is hiding from the God who loves him. Now notice God didn't ask, why are you hiding? Because that would have just encouraged Adam to come up with a whole list of excuses for his behavior. That would have just triggered his fleshly instinct to justify his actions. That, That wouldn't have helped the situation. So God doesn't focus on the reasons why you sinned, but on the terrible consequences of your sin. Adam, we're not here to debate why you did it. We're here to expose what it's done to you. Look at where you are. Look around. Now, friends, I think there's a good lesson to apply to our attempts. If ever there is the necessity to have to confront someone else about their sin, there's some good lessons here. Instead of trying to engage them on the validity or on the the righteousness of their choices, it's more beneficial, really, to help them to see the harmful consequences of those choices. Don't just ask them, why did you do it? Why do you keep doing it? Instead, maybe you should ask them, how's that working for you? Where has it led you? Are you happy where you are? Because in the end, they're not going to come out of hiding until they see for themselves the terrible and lamentable situation that they are now in because of their sin. So there's, there's some important lessons here. But now as we return to the text, it is lamentable that though God asks with such kind intent, 
Adam still responds as if God did pepper him with questions of why. Why did you do it? Why did you hide? Because notice his excuses. Notice his lists of justifications. Look at verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So he says he was afraid, that, that it was a fear of God that led him to hide. Well, just like with shame, there is a good and bad form of fearing God. A, a healthy fear of God would actually lead you towards him in confession and repentance. It's the unhealthy fear of God that drives you away from him under the impression that God is harsh. God is merciless. That's an unhealthy fear of the Lord. So at this point, Adam is driven by that unhealthy fear of the Lord and also by a bad form of shame, symbolized by a nakedness that now engenders within him feelings of guilt and judgment. So that's why he hid himself. Let's keep reading in verse 11. He, the Lord, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now again, notice the way that God phrases his questions. Not in an accusatory way. He didn't ask, why did you eat of that tree? I told you not to eat of that tree. Why did you do that? No, he merely asks, have you? God is leading Adam to self-discovery, to be convicted of his own sin, to, to confess of his own volition. But again, listen to another lamentable response in verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. So he immediately shifts blame onto the woman for giving him the fruit, and he even shifts blame onto God for you giving me this particular woman as my helpmate. And notice how he mentions his actions, his actions at the very end like he's trying to minimize his own contribution to this whole mess. He's minimizing his sin. Now, when God turns to the woman, unfortunately, she responds in like manner. She shifts the blame now onto the serpent. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The serpent with its crafty lies, was able to get the man and the woman to doubt that God had their best interest in mind when he told them about this rule regarding the tree. And they concluded that God must be holding back his best. God must be holding back true joy from us. And so they disobeyed and they ate. But now where are they? Where has that led them? Hiding in the trees, with flimsy fig leaves trying to cover over their psychological shame. And they feel the weight of that shame, and that makes them so quick to blame each other, trying to shift the blame and ultimately to shift the shame onto someone else. And notice, notice how all of this misery that they were experiencing, this was experienced even before God had the chance to punish them. He hasn't punished them yet. He hasn't cursed them yet. He's just asking questions at this point. But if they felt so miserable, 
even before experiencing any punishment for their disobedience, then it's clear that our obedience, while it certainly is for the sake of God's law and ultimately for the sake of God's glory, our obedience, as you can see here, is for our own good, our own joy and, 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 and flourishing. We forfeit so much of our joy when we live in disobedience. So just, friends, think about the shame that you feel. You know, that, that shame that you're trying to ignore or that you're trying to hide. What if that shame could be transformed into a good shame? Could it be that that shame that you are feeling is actually a reminder to come out of hiding and to come back to the Lord? Because in his presence, there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. There's no need to stay in hiding. There's no need to stay in your misery. Come out and there is pleasure and joy in living now in repentance and obedience with the Lord. Well, friends, that's the first consequence of this curse, psychological shame. And I have a sense that many of us feel that. We feel that heavy. Well, the second consequence is spiritual hostility. This Genesis 3 curse incited a perpetual animosity between two lines of progeny. You see, the wars and the conflicts that we experience today are terrible, but they really are just mere skirmishes in comparison to this ancient primordial struggle. Listen to God's words as he turns attention now to the serpent. We said last week that this serpent uh, represents Satan himself, the great deceiver, the great accuser of the saints. So look at, look at verse 14. Verse 14, and the Lord said, Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, Genesis is not suggesting here that, that snakes used to have four legs until God cursed them. You know, that, that there's no need to draw that conclusion. No, the point is, is that the crawling on your belly and the eating of dust are Hebrew idioms that forecast the humiliation and really the total defeat that Satan is destined for. That's what's being communicated here. Because you see, at this point in the story, the devil actually thought he won. He just succeeded in deceiving God's people and turning them against them. They joined the dark side, if you will. And so he was walking out of that garden with his head held high, thinking he was victorious. But then God speaks and proclaims what has been called the Proto-Evangelium. The Proto-Evangelium, that means the first good news, the first gospel message. Look at verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now notice with me three declarations in just that one verse. 
First, he declares enmity between the serpent and the woman. At the start of the chapter, the woman and the serpent were, were very friendly with each other. And she was convinced that the serpent had my best in mind, unlike God. But now, well now, there's enmity, there's hostility between the two. Secondly, the Lord declares enmity between the offsprings of the serpent and the woman. So we're talking about that ancient struggle between two lines of progeny. There, there really is only one human race, but here there is a spiritual distinction being made within the human race between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the devil. Now, when we speak of the devil's offspring, we're not suggesting that the devil personally fathered a whole bunch of children. We're talking about those who share in the works of the devil those who continue to resist God and resist his people, who persist in a practice of sinning, just like the devil. Such people are locked in a perpetual battle with with another line of progeny who does the exact opposite, who does trust in God and who practices righteousness. And you see this struggle played out from Genesis 3 onward. And so you have Cain in the next chapter representing the devil's offspring. And he kills Abel, who represents the woman's offspring. And then you keep reading and you meet Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. You read all these patriarchs and you read of the conflict and the opposition that they continually faced. But just as you think that this is all leading up to this epic battle between two huge armies of descendants... Verse 15 adds a little twist. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The twist is the sudden shift to the singular pronoun. He shall bruise your heel. Head. He shall bruise your head, that is. God's third declaration here is that a champion will one day rise from the line of the woman and he will defeat the serpent once and for all. This champion will represent the woman's offspring on this battleground and he will fight on their behalf. And there he will face the ancient serpent alone. And his victory won't merely be just a personal victory for himself. As our champion, his victory will be extended to all of God's people and it will be our victory. And the good news that we find in verse 15, is the promise that this champion, this offspring of the woman, will surely defeat that ancient serpent. He will be victorious. But our hero will suffer a great wound in the process. It says the serpent will bruise his heel. So they're going to inflict damage on each other. But since it's the serpent's head that is in view in this verse versus merely the hero's heel, well, then this prophecy clearly does signal a final defeat of the serpent, of the devil. His doom is sure. But until then, well, until then, Satan is going to do all he can to oppose God and oppose his people, to waylay our efforts to follow and to do God's will. So from the persecution of the global church 
all the way to the temptation, the private temptation of individual believers, that ancient serpent will give no rest. You know, wounded and cornered animals, they're the most dangerous. When they are wounded, they have, they're cornered, they have no outs, that is when they are most deadly. And so because Satan has a mortal wound, and because his doom is sure, we should be all the more wary of the devil and his schemes. To not treat him lightly, though we know in the end the champion is victorious and the devil will be defeated. Now let's consider a third consequence of the curse, that being relational discord. You see, conflicts on a global scale and, and attacks from the spiritual realm, they're no doubt dreadful. But you know what's more common to us, what we experience more regularly, are conflicts and attacks within the home and among our cherished relationships. All the relational discord and strife that you experience stems back to this very moment in Genesis 3. Listen to God's words to the woman now in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, if you recall, God's original blessing to the woman was a one flesh union with her husband. And it was also the fruitfulness of having children. But now that's exactly where she's being cursed. In precisely those two areas of great blessing, she will now experience the painful consequences of sin. Consider how childbearing is now cursed. The birth pangs that Eve is going to experience every time she bears another child will serve as a constant reminder of the curse. But in God's goodness, those very same birth pangs will also remind her of the hope in God's promise a verse earlier. Because through that pain that she experiences as she's in labor, through all that suffering, one day a child will be born. One who will defeat sin, defeat the serpent, and restore God's blessing back to God's people. So the very same pain that is a consequence of sin, can even be a blessing and a reminder to her of hope in God's promise. But until then, until God's promise of him raising up this champion, until then the curse extends now in verse 16 to her relationship with her husband. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, now that word for desire there actually shows up in the next chapter in Genesis 4, verse 7. So if you look over there in Genesis 4, 7, that's referring to sin's desire to dominate and to control Cain. There in chapter 4, Cain, Cain was, Cain's offering was just rejected by God. So Cain was stewing in anger. And in that emotional state, he was more susceptible to sin. And so God warns him, if you don't watch out, sin is like a crouching lion ready to pounce on you to dominate you. Its desire is contrary to you, but you, Cain, must rule over it. 
Well, in light of that verse, in light of the meaning of desire there, that means the desire that Eve will now have for her husband is like the desire of sin when it was ready to pounce on Cain to dominate him. So because of this curse, a relationship of equality and complementarity will now sour and turn into a relationship of dominance and control. And her sinful husband will likewise respond sinfully and try to rule over her. Loving headship from the husband will be twisted into an ugly chauvinism. And beautiful submission on the part of the wife will be misperceived as a sign of weakness. Instead of serving together as equals, exercising dominion over creation, dominion that they were given to exercise together, now the couple will be in competition with each other, trying to exercise dominion over each other to control each other. Marital strife is illustrative of all the relational discord we experience as a result of this curse. Because what's at the source of all of our relational problems, whether it's at home, among our friends, in our workplaces, in our classrooms, all of it comes down to a desire to dominate, to exert our will over another's. It's because of our failure to humbly submit ourselves, to, to our failure to put the interest of others before our own. That's why we have relational problems. Why do you have conflict with people? Fundamentally, it's because of this curse and what it's been doing to us in our hearts. Well, let's now look at a fourth consequence of this curse. We looked at relational discord. Now let's consider vocational distress. We find this in God's words to Adam starting in verse 17. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the man's pain will be physical like the woman's in that he will now struggle in his primary vocation. He was called in chapter 2, verse 15, to work the garden, to keep it, to cultivate the land. But now suddenly what was once fulfilling and fruitful has now soured and transformed into something frustrating and frequently fruitless. Work has now become laborious. Cursed is the ground, it says. The earth experiences the corrupting effects of our sin, and now the earth is stingy, and it won't give up its crops. The earth now produces thorns and thistles instead. I mean, just think of the farmer's frustration over failed crops, unpredictable weather, irritating pests, destructive diseases, and endless weeding. All of that is illustrative of the modern worker's frustration over jammed printers, crashed computers, workplace politics, unproductive meetings, monotonous tasks. 
All of that that we experience is evidence of the curse. We ate what we shouldn't have, and now, in order to eat what we should, will involve toilsome labor. We failed in our original vocation in the garden, so now, in the city, our vocations will be laborious and often feel fruitless. We feel like we can never accomplish all that we set out to do at work. No, no matter how many goals we achieve, we always seem to be asking ourselves, okay, what's next? What's next? There's always another degree for you to get, always another promotion for you to receive, always another rung of the ladder to climb, and you, and you never, really, never finally make it to the top because every time you get to what you think is the top, you realize, oh, there's more ladder, and it's higher, and it's harder this time. And sadly, in verse 19, it says there won't be any relief of this until we bite the dust. Apparently, we won't be free of the fatigue and exhaustion of work until we die. And death itself is a consequence of sin. It's part of that curse. Friends, I know. I know that's, that's a downer. <laughs> Sounds pretty bleak. This curse... It's so comprehensive. It's so catastrophic. It's made our work tiresome and frustrating. It's ruined our relationships. It's made us the target of the devil. And it's filled us with all of this shame. Genesis 3 paints a very dark picture for us. But notice, friends. Notice the glimmer of light in verse 20. Adam certainly feels the weight of this curse. But for Adam, all hope is not lost. With faith, probably only the size of a mustard seed, he gives his wife a new name. The name that she's best known for. Listen to verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Naming her Eve, the mother of all the living, is really an act of faith. It signals that Adam doesn't think that he and his wife are going to be the first and last human beings on this planet. No, in faith, he believes that God will mercifully grant them offspring. She's going to be a mother one day. And she will one day be part of this line of descendants where our Redeemer will be born. The one who will bruise the serpent's head, who will redeem God's people, who will reverse the curse. Just think about it. The source of all of our shame revolved around a tree. And when the first couple fled, we saw that it was to the trees they went to hide their shame. And later on, the law of Moses would designate the tree as a cursed place of punishment, a punishment deserving of death. And all of that is necessary background to understand the importance of the story of the gospel as it unfolds with the Son of God being nailed to a tree. There on that cursed tree, Jesus atoned for our sins. He covered over our shame by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
Friends, on the cross, God turned his face away from his beloved son. God cursed Jesus for our sake in order that the curse might be removed from us, that God's face now might be turned towards us, that his blessings might be poured out on us in abundance. That's the hope. That's the hope of all who trust in Jesus. Christian, you are not cursed. No matter how you feel, no matter how unlucky you feel, no matter how discouraged or disappointed you feel, no matter how much life is not going your way, if you are in Christ, you are not cursed. But the world still is. It's still under the curse, and that's why you get discouraged. That's why people disappoint you. That's why life doesn't always go your way. But because of Christ, this too shall pass. And one day, the curse will be gone from this world for good. In the last chapter of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, it says that in the new earth, when God's kingdom fully and finally comes, quote, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and we shall see his face. That's our hope in Christ. That sins and sorrows will no more grow, nor thorns infest the ground, because Christ comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this hope, the hope that, not, that all is not lost, that this cursed world that we are living in with all of this pain and suffering, all of this war and aggression, that it will not end this way, but that the story will turn to a glorious result that Christ will return and your kingdom will come. He will make all things new. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more sadness, no more pain. Oh Lord, we look forward to that day in hope and in faith in Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.